Hi, Microbial Nation. Welcome to another episode of the Micro Moment. I'm John, and I'm here with a special guest today, Mark O. Martin. He is a tenured associate professor of biology at the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, Washington. Thanks for coming on today. It's a pleasure to be here, John. How are you? I'm doing fine. Classes begin on Monday. I'm doing uh, two classes with two labs, so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited for it. Very nice. Is it the first time that you've had on-campus classes in a year? Well, we sort of had some last semester, we, and it was, it was non-optimal, let's put it that way, where we did mini labs and everyone was masked and distanced like we're supposed to. But we've had really good vaccination records here from both faculty and staff and students. So and we've good. got filters in the rooms and we've got K95 masks and the students are really ready to rock and roll. That's good to hear. I remember when I was still working at UCR, the microbiology class was all at home. So people were growing plates in their bathrooms. Yeah, I, I don't know how that worked out. Uh, I was told explicitly we couldn't do things like, like this. So there you go. Uh, but, you know, we've all heard stories about what works and what doesn't. I know the students actually want to be around uh, and, and work with us in the lab. And I'm looking forward to it. That's great to hear. So tell us a little about yourself. What made you fascinated in microbiology or microbes in general? Oh, well, that's, that's actually an easy one to tell. It's kind of a two-part story, and, and uh, I'll tell the quick and dirty part now. I have an older brother. He's six years older than I am. And uh, when, when he was a teenager, a really good friend of his named Terry Royal had muscular dystrophy, and he had his own lab as like a high school student. And he needed someone to be his hands. And that was me. And so as I was like nine or 10, I was doing all kinds of experiments with Terry. And one of the things that I'll never forget is he had started going to UCR, in fact, to get his master's degree. Oh, really? With Crellin Pauling. This was many, many years ago. And uh, he brought me home a plate. And he said, take it into a dark room. So I did. And that beautiful bluish green light of what I'm quite sure was photobacterium phosphorium. And, and that just hooked me instantly. The idea of things that glow in the dark has always fascinated me. <laughs> but as you know, almost anything that has to do with microbes interests me, but that's what hooked me originally. That's a great story. Mm -hmm. I'm sure like he could have gotten some flag for that, but you know. Well, they are, they are officially BSL-1 organisms. Uh, okay. People didn't use that terminology then. Mm -hmm. uh, but I still didn't know what it was to be a scientist. I, I don't know if, if uh, and this is relevant to several of the things that I hope we're going to talk about. Uh, I'm first generation. My brother wanted to become a lawyer, and that made sense to my parents. It made sense to me. I didn't want to be a physician. Mm -hmm. and, and so when I thought I wanted to be a scientist, boy, that didn't go over. I was actually born in Southern California in a town called Compton, which you may have heard of in rap music. Oh, yeah. And uh, this is not my natural way of speaking, incidentally. I had to learn how to speak this way. <laughs> and so it was a very different environment at that time in that place, socioeconomically. And, and I didn't know anything about how academia works, period. And in middle school, which we called junior high school, I did a science fair experiment and I'll keep this abbreviated. We had a teacher 
Francis St. Lawrence, who had been involved with all of those big science fairs in the late 1950s and the 1960s. These things kind of petered out in the 70s when I was in, in middle school. But he still had us do science fair projects. And I worked with planarians, flatworms. And I don't know if you're familiar with them, but if you cut them in two, the head half grows a tail, the tail half grows a head. Oh, that's really and, cool. Yeah. And they have a primitive brain and they have eye spots in their head. And I wanted to know whether or not memory could be transferred because I had read a science fiction story about that. Oh, yeah. I, and I found out that's really hard to do. But what I did find out is that if you train these planarians to associate darkness with an electrical shock, mm -hmm. I know, but they're flatworms. In any event, I was able to show that after they regenerated, both ends remembered. Really? And yeah, and, and what I didn't know, because I wasn't reading Scientific American or Discover Magazine or anything like that. So I got this big fancy award for it. And a very famous scientist, Roger Sperry at Caltech, wrote me a letter saying, you, sir, should consider being a scientist. Wow, that's and really it, cool. Yeah, and it looked, how long did that take him to write? Nothing, and it changed the direction of my life. And then I thought, I could probably do this. Now, you know, going through undergrad and graduate school, that's a different story. Right. But I didn't know anything about any of those things up until, you know, getting past high school. That's a, that's a really cool story. Like I can't say mine was as interesting. Um, I started out trying to go into the medical field. Mm -hmm. I went to nursing school, but, um, I knew like textbook, I was really good at field application. Not so much actually oddly, like emergency situations I could like snap to, but outside of that, I really couldn't. So then I went back cause I enjoyed my microbiology class. So I went for medical microbiology as an undergrad. Mm-hmm. And I stayed there since. No, I, I think that, in, and I think you're hitting on, on an important concept is that sometimes when we teach, I can't speak to your experiences. I can just speak to mine. There's too much jumping through hoops. Mm -hmm. Ram stain this, identify this unknown. I'm not saying that's wrong. A lot of people learn that way, but I'll give you an example. I make my students isolate microbes from their water bottles. And one of my students isolated one, which turns out makes some kind of antibiotic. Really? Yeah. And, and I will tell you, this has hooked the student completely because it's something personal to the student. Right. And you can't always do this. There are lots of what are called cures, which are those course-based uh, un undergraduate research experiences. Mm -hmm. and, and they're wonderful, and, but one size never fits all. Whatever we can do as educators and promoters of, of microbiology to get people to think for themselves and to start to frame questions and how to analyze them. And that's one thing that makes the microbial world so super for education is that you can actually frame questions and get the answer relatively quickly. Mm -hmm. And there's, like, there's more than one way to do it in microbiology too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, there was a, a woman named Barbara McClintock who discovered transposable elements in maize and won a Nobel Prize. Mm -hmm. And her biography was called A Feeling for the Organism. And, and this was about that she kind of had, she'd worked with maize long enough, she knew what to expect during kernel development and that kind of thing. And in a similar way, after you work with microbes for a while, you get a feel for them, like what seems to be normal what seems to be abnormal. Mm -hmm. 
And what I tell every student is the late science fiction writer Isaac Asimov says that discovery doesn't happen because, well, he says a damp Greek leaps from the, from the bath saying Eureka, making fun of Archimedes. <laughs> but in fact, the way that science progresses is when someone looks and says, you know, that's weird. And that's what I have always been interested in is looking at unusual things because it gets me thinking about why it's unusual. And I start pulling on that thread and I begin to learn so much more. And I find that when students take that approach, they actually understand what they're learning rather than tell me what, you know, I'm, I'm asking. Yeah. And I mean, when you get a question that you want answered, it grabs the person, it gets them personally invested in that topic. Yes. And they get a feeling of they're invested in it, as you say, and, and they really care about it. Now, they're not going to sit there and say they stay up late at night worrying about it. But I know some do because it bothers them. And, you know, those are the people that you have to really, really mentor and work with because that's our next generation of scientists. Right. I have to admit, there's one or two nights at least where I couldn't sleep at night because it was like, what? six months I was getting nowhere on my project and I'm like what's going on here why is this not working and that kind of ties into what I tell people too is you can generally understand what microbes do but you can't truly domesticate them because every once in a while they're going to do something completely different you're like why are you doing this <laughs> they have their own agenda right you know, a classic example of that is when I was looking for a particular gene, I had an E. coli mutant that had a deletion in a particular gene, and I moved in, as a matter of fact, some Della Vibrio DNA to try and look for the equivalent of that gene. But E. coli didn't care about that. Mm -hmm. E. coli had its own agenda. And so <laughs> I didn't find what I thought I, 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 so I was so surprised when I got the answer of, of what I was really looking at. And it made perfect sense. And so a friend of mine, Bill Metcalf at University of Illinois says, you know, those assays don't care what you want. <laughs> and he's right. It's, it's true. Like my PI said, science is 95% failure, 5% success. And as because 95% of the time, those microbes, really, they're, they're going to do what they want to do. I think the hard part for students to, to really internalize is, and we make a joke of it, we call it the re and research. I don't know about you, but I have had things happen once that were really exciting and you just can't repeat it. Yeah. And you have to, you know, either you can try and untangle it and figure out what you missed. So it's where you can repeat it, or you just have to say, I got to move on. Mm -hmm. But again, you know, they have their own agenda. I mean, I make a joke of it first evolved, last extinct. That's the microbial world, right? Right. And we're new on the scene. Yeah. They've been around for billions of years. Mm -hmm. And we've been in here a fraction of that time. That's right. It's, it's so funny to me when people refer to bacteria as being simple. I'm not saying that you and I and fruit flies and nematodes, I'm not saying they're not more complicated than microbes because they are. But if you think about all the things that have to take place in a bacterium, the interactions of all the different things, the locations of everything. Mm -hmm. I tell students if you unroll all the DNA of the chromosome of standard E. coli, it's a couple of centimeters long, and you pack that into something that you can't even see without a microscope. And you think about how the different polymerases have to find the right places at the right time. Right. 
and it just it just blows your mind and that's that's what's exciting about what we do i know it's like structurally they are similar uh simpler than eukaryotes but there's still so much we don't know yes look at look at a bacteriophage and look at the different pieces that have to be put together in just exactly the right order exactly right? Now, if you look at, at like tobacco mosaic virus, that's one capsid protein, one RNA molecule, and it self-assembles. That's awesome, okay? But that's not how most everything works. No, it doesn't. And so to me, I mean, what I say to students is that the three most important words in science are I don't know. And I, I was influenced a lot by Will Rogers, who used to say, it's not what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you think is so that ain't that gets hmm. you into trouble. And that's really true. So the three most important words are, I don't know, because you, you can fix that. Mm -hmm. And in my field, the things that I'm interested in, I invariably get questions from students that are just awesome questions that nobody has the answer to. And that's good. It I, is. I, I guess there are some fields where everybody knows everything, but that doesn't sound exciting to me. Well, like in a field where people don't know and they ask the questions, I feel that also it allows for looking at a problem at different angles instead of one. Mm -hmm. Say you're you're looking at five different directions, four of them you don't see anything, but that one that one direction really opens it up. It really shows you something completely different. When I first got interested in Della Vibrio, and I was at a conference for the American Society of Microbiology, and there was a very famous ultrastructural expert. His name was Terry Beveridge, and he was a wonderful EM person. And I said, and I had met him, and I, I was very animated and excited because that's who I am. And I think it's important to be who you are. And we were talking a little bit about Della Vibrio, and it's supposed to live between the inner and the outer membrane of gram negative bacteria. Mm -hmm. And we call that region, I was taught to call it the periplasmic space. And when I said that, he said, hold out your hand and i did and he slapped it he said it's not a space it's full of all kinds of things and you must remember that <laughs> and you know he's right the name that we give things affects the way we perceive it in a lot of ways i'm not turning into a social scientist but in fact the periplasm is osmotically as complex as the cytoplasm and it's full of all kinds of enzymes and solutes and all of those things kind of speak to the life history of the organism. And if I continued to call the periplasmic space, I wouldn't be so interested, right? Right. But that really, I've had a lot of things like that happen in my life that really turn my head around and get me thinking about what's really going on and how little we, we have large machines that have lots of buttons and lights and do fantastic things, but this machine, we don't use enough. Right. And the machine between our ears is, is really an elegant computer and can really come up with interesting things if you just feed it the right information. That's very true. So can you tell us what a day in the life of a liberal arts professor is like? Yeah, uh, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, sometimes I catch people thinking hierarchically about work at a predominantly undergraduate institution. Mm -hmm. and, and it really is like comparing apples and uh, convertibles. They're very different things. So for me, most of my time is spent teaching. Mm -hmm. 
I do research throughout the year. Most of the research I do with students is during the summer because the students have more time. But I have to go look up the items I need to order. Mm -hmm. I work at the bench every single day. Most oh. of my friend, yeah, most of my friend, well, I, this is my lab. <laughs> <laughs> and most of my friends who are, are at PhD granting institutions, and, and, and this is great for them. They spend most of their time in their office writing grants. Mm -hmm. And we have to do that too, but there are different kinds of grants. So I don't really think one is easier than the other. They're just different. And I don't have fabulous machines. I wish I had a Malditoff mass spec. I really do, but I don't, and I never will. But what I do have is the ability to phrase questions to students that teach them how to be scientists. And I've had pretty good record of doing that. So to get back to your question, and let me just give you my week for next week, first week of classes. I am teaching a methods course to 11 students. It meets once a week on Monday afternoons. And uh, the, what we're doing there is taking advantage or we're trying to help the situation where there's been a year and a half where students really weren't working in lab. Mm -hmm. So they, they don't really know how to use pipettes or they don't know how to use a spectrophotometer. So I'm doing it based on this. What we're doing is we're following for most of the semester something that Vaughn Cooper at Pitt has been set up with uh, evolving STEM. So we're looking at evolution that takes place in biofilm formers with a particular pseudomonad. And then we're able to actually use a lot of his materials. The students will find these variants. They'll isolate the DNA. And then we're able to get the data about what genes have changed in the entire genome during that process of finding ones that are better or worse at forming biofilms. Oh, that's really cool. I think so. I also have to teach them, of course, sterile procedure and serial dilutions. And I try to do it with things that are interesting, like pigmented bacteria or bioluminescent bacteria. And the class seems really excited about it. It's just, you know, once a week for them. So that's my Monday. Mm -hmm. And then I'm also teaching microbiology. That's Tuesday and Thursday from 930 to 11, giving lecture. And then Tuesday and Wednesday afternoons, one to five, I'm doing labs. And, and so it keeps me jumping. I'm glad that Thursday afternoon and Fridays are free for me so that I can get back to the lab and work with my research students. Mm -hmm. So it's all nervous energy. It's what it is. And, and I just love working with students. Academia, I don't know. That, that's got its own set of, of issues. But I like working with the students. I think that if I was at a PhD granting institution, I would be sad because I wouldn't see so many students. And I like seeing students. Yeah, you generally only see them in the in the classroom and at the academia. I mean, those classrooms, what, general micro, you probably have, what, over 100 easily students in there. You're yeah. not really getting that one-on-one -on -one time with them. And the only students you are really seeing are the graduate students in your lab. That's right. Now, I, I was an undergraduate at UCLA. And so uh, it was some time ago, but I still had classes with well over a hundred people in them. Mm -hmm. So you had to go battle to get to know the professors. Uh, it was so bad that when I went to graduate school, there was someone in my entering class in graduate school who'd also gone to UCLA, been a biology major like me, and I had never seen him. 
Wow. And so at a small liberal arts college like this one, the University of Puget Sound, uh, our classes, and the biggest class I have is intro biology in the spring, which has 42 students. That's really but small. I, but I also teach the lab, so I get them in groups of 16. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's helpful. I can get to know them that way. It's definitely yeah, a more it, it, intimate setting. It is. It is. And, you know, sometimes you find out more than you need to know. So you have to learn to be selective in what you're hearing, mm -hmm. right? Uh, that wouldn't be a problem in a big class because there's so much going on. Right. But to me, I believe, I call this the 80-10-10 rule. I think 10% of the students in my classes are going to do great no matter what I do. I think 10% are going to have problems no matter what I do. And that it, and it doesn't mean that that first group of 10% is better than the other group. They're just different people at different times. And so a lot of times we place our emphasis on the 10% that are going to do really great mm -hmm. because that's that really strokes, strokes our ego, or we place all of our attention on the 10% that are having, and they're usually issues of a fit and how they're feeling and where they are in their lives. And, and, and I stay up late worrying about them, but I'm not thinking about that 80%. And so that's what I told myself many years ago is I, cause I was one of those 80% and I needed that extra help. So I try to be the kind of professor that I needed and it doesn't work for everybody. I mean, my style, some people like it and some people don't, but you have to be who you are. Right. I mean, that's, that's completely true. Like not everyone learns the same way. Yes. As much as you try, you can't exactly curtail to everyone's learning style, unfortunately. No, but but I really find that if they'll talk to you, you can find a way mm -hmm. to make it work. That's the number one problem. And imagine if you were in a class of 100 people, how hard that would be. But if I can get them to talk to me, we find a way to solve the problem. Right. Your job is to see the success of others. Yes. So I'm a, I'm a talent scout. That's what I tell people. <laughs> so when did you know that you wanted to take this path or why did you want to take this path? So I mentioned that I was an undergraduate at UCLA and I was very fortunate to learn I should have been a microbiology major because everyone was so so sweet to me in micro. Um, <laughs> but I was a standard biology major and, and that was much bigger, right? And then I, I went to graduate school at Stanford and I didn't fit in. To this day, I have no idea how I got in. I didn't have the grades. I'd had one publication. I had all these marks against me, but I just, I just wouldn't give up. And so that's another story for another time about why I applied to a bunch of, of quote, good schools. I was surprised at my success. And then I'm at Stanford with people who genuinely are brilliant. And it's very, I mean, it really goes after your ego. And I was really down on myself and I had the opportunity to teach some classes. Uh, we had a professor who became ill and someone needed to step in and I was happy. We, we had to, to TA a little bit, but I was happy to step in for cell biology. And what I found out is that I really liked it. And I was able to form a connection with students. And I also found out that when I taught something, I really understood it. And, you know, there are all these famous people in history that say that if you want to truly know something, you have to teach it. And I'm here to say that that's true. I didn't really understand many of the techniques that I, even ones I used in my thesis, I didn't deeply understand them until I had to teach it to someone. 
And they would say, well, why is that, right? And then I found out that I really liked working with students and I asked myself, did I, and I, I use the word just in quotations, did I just want to teach? As I've had friends do that, they go to, for example, a community college or a junior college and they teach and they teach all the time and they love it. But I also like doing experiments. Right. So how could I do that? And I found out that predominantly undergraduate institutions tend to like that balance between a modest amount of research and the teaching. And you know, it's funny because, you know, I, I know a lot of different people in different areas of microbiology and they'll say things like, well, can't you get someone to sub for you for two weeks? And no, <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't. But that's okay because that's the trade-off that you're making. If I had been a person that was in my office writing grants all the time, I don't think I would be as happy as I am. Now, when I had an NSF grant and uh, when I participated in writing one that we, we had funded a couple of years ago, that was very intensive. We got it done, but I can't imagine doing it every year. Yeah. And again, people who were good at that, I'm delighted, but I actually like puttering in the lab. I, <laughs> when I was in graduate school, st grad students didn't want their advisor in the lab. And they would hide things for fear that the advisor would break stuff. <laughs> really? You know, yeah, uh, I, I'll, I could name names, but I won't. And in fact, you know, I like working in the lab. And so I, I keep a little half bench where I do things that I'm interested in, in the lab. And sometimes those things end up being projects that students take over. That's really cool. Yeah. I have to say like my mind frame is similar. So I, I'm in a pharmaceutical company right now. And I'm lucky enough that I'm still doing research. If I was just at the computer all day, I would hate it. It's like, I know I don't like lab work sometimes, but overall, I love lab work. Like, mm -hmm. we, we all go through the seven flows of it. But if I'm not doing anything like that, I would be miserable at my job. I worked in a biotech company for about seven years. So finishing my CV, as it were, I, I got my PhD from Stanford. I did two postdocs at UC San Diego, and I was at that time married, and my then spouse wanted to stay in that area. Mm -hmm. And, you, you know, what could I do? And so I got a job working with undomesticated microbes. We'll talk about that a little bit if you'd like, <laughs> uh, for a company in, uh, called Kelco in San Diego, and they worked with Xanthomonas campestris that makes a particular type of gun, gum called xanthan gum that's an emulsifying agent. And they worked with other bacteria that made polymers that were of commercial or food usage. But the kinds of experiments that I did weren't very exciting to me, you know, because I, I couldn't do cloning and they were unhappy if I wanted to do conjugations into the strains and things of that nature. So in a way, I was lucky when I got laid off because it kind of forced the issue. Mm -hmm. And then a, a good friend of mine uh, who I'd gone to graduate school with had written to me, he'd heard about a job that had opened up at a small liberal arts college in LA. And I applied for it and got it. And that's what started me back in academia. So I'm, I'm older than most people at my level, but I'm not sorry for the detours that I took. I mean, as long as you love what you're doing, it doesn't really matter, right? Oh, no, I, I you know, when you have a student like I do, who recently got tenure at Stanford. That's really exciting. Mm -hmm. And I knew that student 
when that student was like 20 years old, I taught that student how to do mini preps, right? <laughs> and there is no feeling quite like that. And then someone might say, well, Mark, don't you wish that you were this super famous person? And honestly, I would not be a very good famous person, but I am a good talent scout. I'm really good at seeing talent in students and I'm really good at encouraging them. And I think that when you find something that you're good at, that you find rewarding, you should do that. So I did. I think that's a great frame of mind, really. You can have like students that go through your lab and you can graduate them. They have their PhD, but if you can see the potential and like steer them in the right direction, I mean, I feel like some of the other graduate students I've known felt like they were kind of lost after graduate school. Right. A lot of times they just need advice or someone to listen. So if mm -hmm. you just give them that and help them steer, I mean, that makes a world of difference for a lot of people. So, you know, I've had, um, I guess I'm up to 24 of my research students that have gone to PhD programs. I think I have five in faculty positions. And sometimes, you know, there'll be students that stay close to me after they graduate and they stay in contact and become colleagues. They're the people I call up. I'm having trouble with this experiment. And it's so cool to have someone that you taught first year biology to tell you how to do an experiment correctly. And I mean that with great delight. It's one of the best feelings that there can be for a person like me. There are other students that after they go on to graduate school, they have other things that they're interested in. They don't stay in touch. I don't push at that. I always tell them I'm always there to listen and I'm always there to help and advise as best I can. I make a joke that students in my lab are part of like the lab fam, mm -hmm. but you know, just like real families, biological families, not everybody has to three cheer each other, but we all look out for one another as best we can. And so if a student needs my help, I'm there. And yeah, like I said, I think that's a, what, a, a you know, not everyone there, but there are people that definitely need that. And yeah. Yeah. having that structure right there, just, just knowing is a lot of help. I think sometimes what you're left with is you think, and, and I want to say this carefully because I'm not being judgmental about anyone or anything, but if you yourself had some experiences in your past that were difficult for you or that you had challenges with, I'm not blaming the other people that were part of it, but what you can say is, I know how that felt and I want to keep other people from having those experiences. That's a good thing. Yeah. You know, everything is situational anyway, right? Right. So you kind of touch upon this, like, I have to say, like, your, your lab is really interesting because it focuses on undergraduate research, which yeah. is something I'm not used to. Like, I, I didn't see that going to school. There are undergrads that usually in a lot of academic setting that do research in a university, but those labs are mostly filled with masters and PhD students. So... I know it's partially because you're a liberal arts uh, school, but why did you take this approach, really? I didn't know too much about this because there was no one talking to me like I'm talking to you mm -hmm. about what it's like. I didn't know anyone. I didn't go to a small school. That's what I should have done. It would have worked a lot better, you know, for this lost soul when I was in my, you know, teens and 20s. But uh, I didn't have that option. I didn't know anything other than the PhD level stuff. And I didn't know more than what you saw at some type of biotech company. 
back in the days where I had to wear three-piece suits, right? That kind of stuff. And so I thought, what do I like to do and why? And I remember when I worked at the biotech company, I really missed doing experiments. I would do them anyway. You know, <laughs> I, I would like make xanthomonas resistant to rifamycin. I would try and come up with things that I could do because I liked the process of counting colonies on plates Mm -hmm. and kind of listening to what the microbes were sort of saying. It comes back to the feeling for the organism that I was mentioning. Right. And because of that, I knew I had to find some happy medium behind what I saw at a PhD granting institution and what I would see in a teaching only situation. Now, I had some professors at UCLA who were actually very, very, very helpful to me, but I wasn't ready to hear what they had to say at my age. At a certain degree of, we'll just call it testosterone poisoning. I didn't want to say I needed help about anything, you know? Right. Um, my late father used to say that I, I would receive my punishment for being a teenager when I had children of my own. And before I had children of my own, I had plenty of people in that age group in my lab. And it really, you know, it's really helped me with perspective. So when I looked into this job, that I took right after I, I got laid off from a biotech job at that institution, the place was called, it still is called Occidental College. The professors worked with students and they did research with students and they published with students, not anywhere near with the frequency you see at uh, an R01 institution. Now there are some people at liberal arts colleges that do. I have a colleague who publishes tons of stuff she happens to be an ecologist and does all this fabulous work, but you don't see as much of that as you would at, at a PhD granting institution. But I really like the fact that I could put a student down and say, this is your project. No one knows more about this than you do. So let's work it out. And especially because when I first got into it, I wasn't limited. I had just a shoestring budget and I could look at whatever interested me within that shoestring budget. Mm -hmm. That's that's how I got, got into Della Vibrio. And, you know, even if you can't publish things, to have a student clone out a gene from Della Vibrio that corrects a defect in E. coli, the look on their face when they do that is just wonderful. The poster presentations they put together, the talks that they give, these are wonderful, wonderful things. And I found it like nutra bars for my soul. Mm. You know, they, they really helped me a lot, made me feel like I was making a difference. Because, you know, all of us think that we're not making a difference. Truth is, we all are, but we don't really believe it. But it was nice to know I could help some of these students. Now, again, it's very different than what you see at PhD granting institutions. And there are people at liberal arts colleges that do publish a ton. So I, I don't want to misrepresent that. It's just much less frequent that, that you see, than you would see at an R01 institution. And so it kind of like threaded the needle for me. Mm -hmm. That harks back to like the more intimate setting of like not publishing not so much. You can focus more on that student more about their yes. project more. That's really nice. You know, I had, I had years ago, I had a student and she is a fabulous bioinformaticist now uh, in the Seattle area. A wonderful, wonderful scientist. And she gave a talk at the West Coast Bacterial Physiology Meetings. <laughs> and I said to her, you know, have you practiced your talk? 
And she said, one of my friends listened to it. And I said, oh, okay. And then after she heard some of the talks, she says, can we practice for about three hours right now? And I said, absolutely. And she did, she would have done a good job no matter what, let's be clear. But she suddenly was so invested in it and gave such a good talk. And I'll never forget when people thought she was a postdoc. And the look on her face when they thought that, based on her 10-minute presentation in front of all, all kinds of microbiologists, boy, that was a wonderful experience for her and for me. Definitely like a sense of pride right there. Yeah. And, and I think that we don't spend enough time in our society. We, we're really good at saying what's wrong. I call it the yelpification of society. We have no trouble complaining. But we seem to have trouble saying when someone has done a good job, and I don't know why that is. I will get students, at, for example, in my first year course that I teach in the spring, and they'll do a really fabulous job on a question. And I will say to them privately, I said, you know, that was a really good answer. You did really well. And, and they'll say, oh, I was lucky. And I thought, well, what are you, Amish? You know, <laughs> you know, and then I realized it really didn't occur to that student that their hard work resulted in that, that they earned it, it was theirs. And so that's one of the jobs that I have is to make sure that students see when they do really good things, that it's something that, that they accomplished, it's theirs. They did that. Like I said, I'm a talent scout. <laughs> and also, like I said before, that, that really like helps people get into microbiology too. We, we make a joke about it that, you know, students will work in there and insist to me that they won't be a microbiologist and, and all the other students in the lab laugh at them, you know, <laughs> and, and, and no, I, I don't want to make everyone a microbiologist, uh, but I do want them to have a project that they like, that they feel ownership for, that they're mm -hmm. in charge of, that they present on, and they have that wonderful sense. If we can turn those into publications, that's the greatest thing ever, Right. Right. We just had one come out that we're really excited about from the NSF uh, supported stuff with several undergrad students that we're really happy about. And, you know, I have to remind them that this is like a really big deal, that they really did a fabulous job. It's okay to say, yay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the NSF grant is nothing to, to shake off so easily. I mean, that's, that's hard to get first off. Yeah we really take that seriously. I mean, that's the project that you, you heard a little bit about with Stacy Weiss. That's an extra, actually uh, another reason I like small liberal arts colleges. Um, Stacy is a behavioral ecologist. And what happened is she walked down the hall, this is maybe 10 years ago, and she said, Mark, I, I have this, this issue. And I said, what would that be? You know, she's clear on the other side of the building. And she said that she's studying these lizards and she studies them for a completely different reason that she was bringing them to me. But she said that when she dissected the eggs out versus naturally laid eggs, the naturally laid eggs seem to do better in terms of fending off fungal pathogens in the soil after they're laid. Mm -hmm. So I said, perhaps there are some microbes in the cloaca that get deposited on the eggs that act as a protectant. And we worked on this for years and years and years. You know, we didn't have a lot of resources we just did the best we could, and then we got this NSF grant, and then we got a couple of publications out of it, and we put those students out front and center because that's they put their heart and souls into this stuff. And I'm in the process this semester. I have a student working with me to try and find out 
in one of the isolates that we know is antifungal, what genes are involved in that? You know, so I'm teaching transposon mutagenesis and we'll do a little bit of genomic analysis and, and that kind of work. It's really exciting to do that with them. All the more power to you. Like I, I knew the, the theory behind transposon, but I never got into transposon mutagenesis. I know it can be a lot of work. I mean, what, what I used to say is I never learned a technique in graduate school that, I mean, I didn't learn several techniques in graduate school and I always felt badly about it, but within a few years, it was all automated anyway. So like, I never learned to do DNA sequencing mm -hmm. as a graduate student. I, I don't know anybody that really does it anymore. They might have something like a minion, but they are not running Sanger sequencing in the lab, you mm -hmm. know, on the giant polyacrylamide gels. No. <laughs> So the technology keeps changing and it's always for the better. I mean, I always thought that uh, transposon mutagenesis was cool. It's like, let's just randomly insert a bunch of DNA into the genome, see what works, see what doesn't work and try to tease out the answer from that. Absolutely. And you can, there are all kinds of clever ways of doing it, but, and you're not wrong with what you say, but more and more, and this speaks to the future of microbiology, we need to look at networks of genes that work together. And transposon mutagenesis won't answer those questions very well. Mm -hmm. So there are lots of people far smarter and more accomplished than I will ever be who are starting to find chinks in that armor. And hopefully some of those we can apply to undergraduate work as well. This week's episode of The Micro Moment is brought to you by Zymo Research. Accurate and reproducible microbiome analysis relies on well-defined mock community standards as well as optimized methods for sample collection, nucleic acid extraction, library prep, and bioinformatics. Check out Zymo's complete microbiome workflow at zymoresearch.com. That's Z-Y-M-O-R-E-S-E. E-A-R-C-H dot com. So you kind of touched on this a little bit, like your research spans a wide range of topics from bacterial predators like Bedella Vibrio colloquial microbes, tardigrade microbiomes, and microbial inhabitants of marine anthropogenic sulfide seeps in Puget Sound. But what drew you to all these, this vast range of different research? Yeah, and, and this speaks a little bit about why it's often wonderful to work at a small undergraduate institution. If you are handling a lot of grant money, you want to be as narrow as possible to get the greatest productivity you can. I like to give students the opportunity to look at unusual questions. And so a lot of times these are things that I work on a little bit that I'm interested in and it's kind of like a hobby. Mm -hmm. So, and, and a lot of times it's due to things that other people in my department say. So for example, here in Puget Sound, there was a wood industry. So there, a paper industry, there were tons and tons of lumber waste, there's sawdust. And what people used to do for decades is just bury the sawdust at the shoreline. And there are areas along the shoreline where if you jump up and down on the sand, it's kind of spongy. Really? 
and you dig down and you see the remains of sawdust that are like feet thick. Wow. <laughs> and so a colleague of mine, Joel Elliott here in this department got very interested in this because he told me something that blew my mind years ago. He said to me, when the tide comes in, what you're doing is getting all of that wood waste wet under the surface of the sand. And then the tide goes out. And he said that effluent that comes out of that spongy mat of wood can be up to five millimolar hydrogen sulfide. Now that's like a hundredfold more than you see at hydrothermal vents. That's crazy. And, and I said, well, that sounds like a hydrothermal vent. He goes, yeah, that's what these big threads are. I said, what big threads? And if you go to these areas, you see these huge strands of sulfur oxidizing bacteria down there. So I came up with calling it an anthropogenic sulfide seep because it is. You know, you buried all the wood waste. It's like a giant fermenter. Mm -hmm. And that's where people make a joke, the aroma of Tacoma. And that's a little <laughs> bit with the hydrogen sulfides about, right? But it's so fascinating because you see all of this stuff on the surfaces of rocks. You can even find crabs covered with these uh, strands of sulfur oxidizing bacteria. So I don't know if you're familiar with around hydrothermal vents, there are these tiny lobster relatives that are called Yeti crabs because they're covered with strands of sulfur oxidizing bacteria. Yeah, I think I've seen pictures of them before. They're called Yeti crabs and that's funny. And then we found, Joel found these crabs in, in the sulfide seeps out here that are covered with strands. I've been calling those Sasquatch crabs. Um, <laughs> We don't know if there's a specific symbiotic relationship. It may be that they're just, you know, it's a surface to grow on. Mm -hmm. But I know that sooner or later, I'm going to get a student and said, I want to know more about those strands. So what Joel has done in my department is published a couple of papers on the relationship between those sulfide seeps and how it leads to the death of, of eelgrass right off the coast because they can't tolerate all that hydrogen sulfide. And he can use those white strands to identify the areas where there are lots and lots of, of that hydrogen sulfide being produced. That's pretty cool. So it's just talking to people there. So basically things that I've always been interested in, I mean, I have a gene library of Della Vibrio that I got as a gift years ago. So I've had students clone out of that. It's actually kind of hard to work with Dello because it won't grow on its own. It has to grow on E. coli, so it makes it a little more challenging. But we have other predators we look at. I have a student looking at Ansiferid herons, which is a predator of gram positives. And we're looking at the issue of motility with that uh, process, which is a lot of fun. I have a student now, I'm really excited about the work she's doing with bioluminescence as well because I've always been interested in bioluminescence and her work has been fabulous. So, I, I mean, there's always something for a student to work on here is my point. And, you know, if you go to the chemistry department, they have a lot of people who tend to work on the same project and that's one way to do things mm -hmm. and how graduate school works. But I really think it helps students to have a project that they're in charge of because that's my goal is to train them. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how, how I look at it. You look at undomesticated microbes. I do. What are these microbes? Like what makes an undomesticated microbe? Well, when you first isolate a bacterium from nature, 
it is very different than the final form that you put in a cryoviolence store at minus 80. And if you look historically at Beyerink, who first isolated what we now call photobacterium, he found out it was sectoring colonies and it would throw off variants that didn't make as much light. And he was completely uninterested in that and just focused on the ones that made light all the time. Ditto with serratia that makes the red pigment prodigiosin. If you look at those fresh from nature, you'll get these sectored colonies, different amounts of, but, but if you go and you buy that strain from Carolina Biological Supply, it makes a ton of that dye and nothing else. And so the process of growing bacteria in the lab over many years changes it. I make a joke, the hand of Darwin is on all that lives. And so evolution's taking place all the time. So you would agree with me that life in a 50 ml Erlenmeyer or a 2059 culture tube is very different than life in the soil. They're by themselves. They're not in concert with other organisms, mm -hmm. right? They're living in a very different situation with regards of oxygen, nutrients, waste materials, space. And so they tend to become adapted to that. And then they change genetically. And so I call them undomesticated microbes for that reason. So when, when I worked in a company, and I don't know if you've ever done this, there's this uh, whole market for fat substitutes. Mm -hmm. And if you go to the supermarket, there's things that are called Snackwell cakes. Right. Now, Snackwell cakes are made with gel and gum, and I helped develop that. And that's made by a pseudomonas that was found in leaf litter in Encinitas, California. And it makes this polysaccharide. And my job was to kind of modify it so it wasn't as thick as it would normally be. So even in the process of growing things on plates repeatedly by restreaking and restreaking and restreaking, changes take place. So all of my life, I've been most interested in organisms fresh from nature, because I think that tells you more about how they live. Yeah, I think what a lot of people may not know is what you uh, touch on upon is microbes will change rapidly sometimes in a lab setting. Yes. Microbes are good at maximizing their energy output and sometimes they'll kick out genes so they don't have to waste that energy and also if you start growing them in different things they'll shut stuff down and then open up other genes so that they can grow optimally in those conditions and then you just randomly toss them into say another media and they're like ah we don't like that well that's that's what we're trying to do with the students here if you are looking at this strain of, of Pseudomonas fluorescens, SWB25, and you serially passage it on beads so that they are, you're selecting for things that form very firm biofilms. And you do this like for a week, you end up with very different colony morphology. And mm -hmm. then when you isolate the DNA and you compare the whole genome, which you can do for 80 bucks now, it's, it's amazing. It'll be cheaper soon. That's the other part. You can find out that two or three genes have changed and they're always the same two or three genes. And it can give you some idea of what's taken place. The strain of Della Vibrio that I first worked on, and this is relevant to your comment, was called strain 109J. Mm -hmm. And it was isolated by Sidney Rittenberg, who was my first microbiology professor at UCLA. And he didn't make a frozen stock for 25 years. Once oh. a week, he passaged it. Wow. 
So he was doing the Rich Lensky experiment, right? Right. Yeah. And nobody's terribly interested. So we don't have the original 109J to see what changes have taken place. But I can promise you that the changes are helping to optimize its ability to do well under shake culture conditions. Right. And that's one thing I want the students when they come out of my microbiology class to understand is how plastic and protein uh, microbes are, even within a single colony. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there can be just little DNA changes from microbe to microbe. And I know in my work, we limit how many generations we make to minimize that mutation rate in those microbes. Very wise. I mean, people, I, I, when I used to, I used to look at luminescence variation when I was a postdoc uh, with a bioluminescent uh, organism called Vibrio harvii. And I found out that the best way to do that was leave them on a plate for a week mm -hmm. and restream. And it's because of the stresses, right? Mm -hmm. And there's something called gasp phenomena that uh, Roberto Coulter and a couple of his students worked on, then Stephen Finkel at USC followed up on. And it stands for growth advantage and stationary phase. And you can actually observe all the changes that take place that optimize their growth under stationary phase conditions. That's really cool. It is just the best. You kind of touched a little bit on something that I want to talk about is your Luxart. Now, I know when I reached out to you originally, I told you that I worked with a Vibrio cholera in my uh -huh. graduate, and we had a strain that would bioilluminate. And from what I knew is bacteria would bioilluminate via quorum sensing, you know, you get a uh, bacteria will produce a chemical and as they get denser and denser cultures, the chemical reaches a threshold and it causes a change in bacteria. And for the Lux genes, my original understanding is it worked that way, but photobacterium don't, right? It's independent of quorum sensing, right? The one I work on that was isolated by Eric Stab and Ned Ruby and followed up a lot by a couple of other people, doesn't appear to do quorum sensing. And it's really funny because I used to want to demonstrate quorum sensing to my students. And I had been using this photobacterium strain because it grows so quickly. Mm -hmm. And I found out I couldn't demonstrate quorum sensing. And if you, <laughs> if you actually looked at the papers, it, it says just in black and white, you know, it doesn't appear to do quorum sensing. and and. That's why we're interested in it in the lab, is that we are interested why it makes light at all. And we're able to set up conditions where things that are dim seem to outcompete it mm -hmm. that take place, but not dark. And so we've gotten very interested in that around here. And I'm really excited about that. But we got interested in it just to, I was trying to find a way to make bacteria friendly. You've heard me talk about hashtag microbial PR. I spent my life trying to teach people that microbes are not necessarily bad. Then a pandemic comes and slaps us upside the face. Mm -hmm. I have a whole talk I give on this. And that's what I, and this is what I gave Karski Award talk on a couple of years ago at ASM. Because we really don't look at microbes the correct way. I mean, the vast majority of microbes could care less about us. We are not even a surface to them. We put all of our focus on what I call devil microbes or angel microbes. The devil microbes that cause disease, the angel microbes that we're going to cure whatever's ailing us that I see every day. Mm -hmm. 
when mostly it's meh, they don't really care about us at all. So what could I do to approach this? And because bioluminescence is inherently interesting to people, um, my wife and I started to kind of paint with it. So I grow a culture up and I've gotten pretty good at it. So I, I can get this thing growing really well and very bright. And then we paint it with it on nutrient media, the correct nutrient media, incubate it overnight, and then I photograph it. And my wife has gotten, Dr. Jennifer Quinn, I should say, at the University of Washington, Tacoma, has gotten, she's a mathematician, but she's quite artistic. And she's done a wonderful job, I think, of, of really showing how art can become part of this. And I usually have students do their painting with it. I have first-year students that have done wonderful things with it. And they walk out of there not thinking that every microbe is bad. You've seen some of the YouTube videos I've done of, of Lux Art sessions that I've done. And let me be clear that this is not original with me. I mean, even before ASM was promoting all their Petri dish art things, I mean, Alexander Fleming himself used to paint with microbes. And so there's a long history of, of people trying to look at the artistic aspects of it. But I love seeing what the students bring to it. And so, I have to really suggest for people to check it out because like I looked at it and I'm actually amazed of how much detail that you and your wife have been able to put into these Petri dishes. And you got like all sorts of scientists like Esther Lederberg, Albert Einstein. You got like, it's, it's amazing. And I'm like, I don't have half the talent to do this and I don't know how you do it, but it's amazing looking. <laughs> you will note that I am not doing the painting. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. I, I'm really good at doing lettering. That's what I'm good at. But Jenny has gotten really good at it. And, and, and I think it's a good outreach activity. I, I love having, having young people try that out. And, and, and it's really fun to watch because sometimes they'll think, oh, this is silly. And then they get into it. And, and then they start to create things that are really artistic and quite talented. And just like I told you before, they'll explain it's no big deal. And I just don't know what to say to that. You know, I, so you, I'll, I'll, all I say is it is to me. I agree. And you said that Alexander Fleming painted, but what exactly sparked the idea of LuxArt? Oh, for me, because uh, I was finger painting with it in, in junior high school, which I'm not supposed to talk <laughs> about, I'm sure. So I, I get students who say, can I put this on my face? I say, oh, please don't do that. Oh, please, <laughs> please don't do that. <laughs> now, there are some bioluminescent bacteria, you mentioned Vibrio cholera, but there are some bioluminescent bacteria that have been associated with some pathogenesis. Um, do, do you know the story of the angel glow from the American Civil War? No, I don't, actually. So one of the big mysteries in bioluminescence to me is why it's so common in marine environments and relatively rare in terrestrial environments. Now, I mean bacterial bioluminescence. And there was a story from the American Civil War. Remember, before antibiotics and before electric light, people would get terrible infections from being shot. And there wasn't much that doctors could do. Mm -hmm. And the story was, and we would not see this now because we have too much light, that some in some of these patients, the wounds would be faintly glowing. Really? And the doctors said, well, notice that they got better when they thought, well, maybe what we're looking at there is a sign that, that there's something magical taking place. But what it really is, is a particular type of terrestrial bioluminescent bacterium called Photorhabdis. And it makes tons of antibiotics. 
And there's a possibility that uh, that's what you're really looking at. We don't know for sure, but I know that when I have students take that bacterium and inject it into wax worms, the corpses glow in the dark. That's really cool. So I was always messing with things that glow in the dark. I mean, you surely at some point have seen dinoflagellates at the beach, mm -hmm. you know, where you get that, that red tide, where you get the glowing stuff. And you'll notice that if you pound the sand, it'll flash at you and all that kind of stuff. So I guess I've always been a little unusual that way. <laughs> but it's fabulous, right? I mean, it's, it's beautiful once you see it. It is. So you also hit on to this a little bit earlier, hashtag matters microbial and hashtag microbial PR. And I agree with you, like, you can't really say microbes are good or bad. I mean, like you said, some do good things, some have, they do bad things. It's not like they're out to get you. It's just, they're trying to live. It's kind of what I feel like, I don't know if this is the best example of like sharks. Mm -hmm. They'll leave you alone most of the time. And then every once in a while, you'll see one that attacks a human. It's like, well, if you look at statistics, it's not really going to happen to you. Yeah. Microbes aren't out to get you. And without them, we wouldn't exist or be able to survive right now. So what's the story behind these hashtags? So I like to try and, and involve my students a little bit in social media where I can. Now, it's, you have to be very careful when you do this. Social media can be like the Wild West. You absolutely don't want to force any student to be involved with social media. And I always tell them only what you're comfortable with on this. Mm -hmm. But I'll send them out looking for examples of things. They love critiquing what they see in the news. And so what I'm really doing is getting them to work pretty hard, but they're having a good time. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, there's something that I call a hashtag swab story. Now, you've seen these. I call them, instead of sob stories, I call them swab stories. <laughs> and you'll see people in the news talking about, and I don't care what it is, they'll say, this environment has bacteria. And going, well, well, yeah. Like the bottom of your shoe has bacteria. Well, sure, right? But they say it in breathless, scared tones. And so I call that a swab story. And I get students looking for those. Mm -hmm. I also like to point out how important microbes are. They are the basis of the very biosphere. The two most important enzymes on the planet are nitrogenase and rubisco. And those are bacterial enzymes, okay? And without those enzymes, life is 100% impossible. And I tell this to my first year students and they'll say things like, well, plants have rubisco. I said, indeed they do. What part of a plant? They'll say a chloroplast. And I'll say, what were chloroplasts originally? And then they say, well, they're cyanobacteria. I said, exactly. <laughs> right? Right, exactly. And Jack Vincent, and I cannot think of the co-author, and I apologize, but Jack Vincent did a really interesting article about a world without microbes. I don't recall his co-author, and I apologize if that comes up. But it's a really, and there's a, a video about it, the whole idea of what would happen if microbes weren't around. So I like to have them start collecting facts about how important microbes are to say nutrient cycling or to food preservation or to medicine or to industry. And it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. I also, and I didn't include this as the hashtag. I'll, I, I'll do the whole OMG, which stands for overwhelming microbial greatness. And that's where you <laughs> see something that's just absolutely mind bending. Like when CRISPR was first, it was first discovered, that was like an OMG moment for me. Right. Right. Yeah. 
There was a great article that has covered on our last episode where, you know, we do this thing called the bomb and we try to cover relatively recent news in microbiology. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about how bacteria can produce a lot more protein per hectare than soy bean yep. can. They're talking about like, I think it was like one hectare was like 40 something people or maybe 140 people, but uh, bacteria that produce protein fed over 500 people over a year. So it's like, wow, it's like these little things we could theoretically use to feed the population and people don't even know that. I mean, we already make food products that are microbial based. Yeah, I haven't tried the fungal ones. There's this stuff called corn, Q-U-R-N. I haven't tried that yet. It's okay. (laughs) But you're absolutely right. They're little machines Mm -hmm. uh, of a biological nature. And, and, you know, it's like, and you know this, when you actually show students how a bacterial flagellum looks, and they'll look at you saying, that's a rotary motor. And you'll say, yes, yeah. yes, it is, right? <laughs> they just invented it a lot earlier than humans did. Yeah. yeah. And this is just the wonderful part of it. I mean, the, the, the number one problem I have is that I only have one semester to teach this stuff, right? But I, at least I get to teach it every year. Yeah. I think another great example, it's going to be very broad because it would take a lot longer to dive into it. But, you know, in terms of microbiome research, uh, a lot of people use germ-free models in order to research it. There aren't that many out there because things don't do well without microbes. Yes. And I think that's an important example. It's like, yeah, we have these germ-free models, but some of them are really sick. Like I've heard of a germ-free plant model, like for citrus, but it is terrible at growing. And um, of course we have mice, but it's like, look at all the things that you can't make germ-free. And that should tell you that, you know, we have this integral relationship with microbes. I agree. Uh, The whole idea that we're... (laughs) So I, I had a student many years ago, and this student is now a fabulous dentist. But at that time... You know, I do go on a little bit, as you can you can gather. And this student was kind of like looking a little bit glazed eyed. And I said to the student, you know, right now there's a cloud of Doc Martin associated microbes being emitted by me. And there's a cloud of ones being emitted by you. And they're meeting in the middle and her eyes got huge. <laughs> and a couple of days later, she had talked her uh, boyfriend into making a painting a pig pen from Charles Schultz from Peanuts, uh-huh. but rather than dirt, they were all microbes. And that's really how we live all the time. We're in a cloud of microbes and we co-evolved with them. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a very wonderful paper by the great Margaret McFall Nye called Animals in a Microbial World from PNAS that I highly recommend. And it just gives example after example of exactly what you were saying, how important microbes are to the animal world. And everywhere you look, there are cool examples, the coanoflagellates that will only complete development in response to a bacterial signal. Certain hydroids will only settle in response to a bacterial signal. And to the point where I heard this story uh, years ago that some students were taking animal physiology after they had taken my class here. Mm-hmm. They had an independent project and they were working with earthworms and they were talking about it. 
and they were saying, all right, so we have to control for this, we have to control for that. Oh, we haven't thought about the microbes. And they stopped and looked and they said, we drank the Kool-Aid. <laughs> yes, they did. <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, it's possible to sound flippant about how wonderful microbiology is. And I'm 100% genuine in my enthusiasm. But at the same time, you know, there's a limit to how much you have to kind of balance the rigor with the coolness factor. And that's always a tightrope for me. Mm -hmm. I agree. So what is your favorite microbe? <laughs> that's like asking a parent what their favorite child would be. Pretty much, I've only worked with organisms that really interested me. Mm -hmm. So I am fascinated by photobacterium, of course, because I'm working with it currently. Ensifer fascinates me. Della Vibrio is, is set, it breaks my heart constantly, but I, I do love it. I think one that I wanted to draw your attention to is Penibacillus dendriticiformis. It's this wonderful relative of bacillus that makes these dendricoform like outreaches. And what they're doing is increasing surface area. They look like web work. Mm -hmm. That's a fascinating bacterium too. But the ones that I think are most interesting are the ones that we've never been able to grow yet. So there's Vampirococcus, mm -hmm. which no one's been able to grow. It's like a coccus that attaches to gram positives, but no one's ever been able to grow it. And Lynn Margulis had written about Daptobacter, which seems to just plow into other bacteria and invade directly. And no one has grown that one. What I like to do with students a lot is I have kind of a, a list of interesting microbes and I'll have them pick it out of a hat. And I do mean a hat. I'll have it on slips of paper and then I'll have them go spend the weekend seeing what they can dig up about it. And it's always interesting to me. You know, I, I love to turn them loose on Wolbachia you know, for example, because uh, mm -hmm. that just blows their mind. So there's so many cool microbes to get them interested in. You can't, it's really hard to like pick one, isn't it? Yeah. So you promote never giving up. What yes. does that mean for you? And what does it mean to millions of people out there? I want to recommend a book. It's by the late Randy Pausch, and it's called The Last Lecture. Now he wrote that book after he discovered he had terminal pancreatic cancer, he'd been asked to give a last lecture mm -hmm. and that it was going to be the last lecture. And it's all about rules for living. And it's about perseverance, about not getting up, not giving up. But that, it sounds like a little dark, but I really recommend the book. I've given out lots and lots of copies to first year students. If you watch Ted Lasso, you should know <laughs> I'm a big believer in that. But I was a believer in that long before Ted, I wear a lot of pins. And I actually had a student, my, one of my first year students say last semester, I was the Ted Lasso of biology, which I'll take as a great compliment, okay? Mm -hmm. But I think that it's really important to be a nice human. It's really important to be brave. In particular, to be brave enough to really be bad at something new. I'm good at being bad at things. <laughs> I'm a big believer in being kind. I would urge people in this day of Yelp to stop reading the comments and ignore the haters. And I made, I had this made, I love this. You are not a test score. And I wanna say that there are so many people that erect a barrier to themselves between what it is they want to do and where they are. Mm 
and they'll tell me, I can't do X because of Y. And I always tell them what's important is how much you want to go there. And again, this is what Randy Pausch writes about the brick walls that are put up. Those brick walls are to keep other people out, mm -hmm. not you, if you really want to do it. If you would have talked to me in middle school and said, you're going to go to Stanford University to get your PhD, I would have laughed in your face. If you would have said, you're going to be a college professor, I would have laughed in your face. There were many, many times where I could have given up. There are no mistakes I have not made with very few exceptions on this, but I just did not give up. And I find that I've been fortunate at my very lowest, there have been people who've gone out of their way to encourage me. And they all know who they are and I owe them a lot. And all I can do is pay it forward. And I have had, I have, it's almost, mystical i'll run into students every year that are at the end of their rope about like changing a career or having some terrible life issue and we'll just start talking about it i didn't know and they didn't know they were going to talk about it with me part of it is just being there and i really think that with the way the world is right now we're not there for each other enough i mean we're certainly able to judge one another and, and say nasty things to each other but we're not just there for one another enough. And that sounds like a Hallmark card, but I deeply believe it. My professional life has been saved by the kindness of others many times. Mm -hmm. So how could I not do the same for other people? That's very serious, but there you go. So it's, it's a very good message out there because, you know, I feel like I keep going back to it, but like just listening uh, mm -hmm. or talking, it's, uh, it's easy to judge others, but it, it's harder to listen to people but you know if more people did it especially like if you're in college for the first time it's a whole new form of independence and you don't really know where to go there a lot of the time and then grad school there's a lot of graduate students that yeah they are depressed because it's it's hard it is you're working long hours but yeah just listening to someone can do wonders just having someone there yeah and waiting to speak is not listening either and that's something I struggle with a lot because I'll have lots of things that I'll want to say. And sometimes someone will want to tell me something and I'm, I'm so excited to get to my next point that I forget that my job is to listen. And sometimes that's all they need. Mm -hmm. And you just, I, I have something I say to students when they're having trouble, and this is going to sound like a hallmark moment again, but it's really true. I will tell a student who's having trouble that right now there's a kid in elementary school right now who's going to need them in 15 years. And I'm gonna ask them, where are you gonna be? Cause you gotta be there for them. Cause in 15 years time, whatever it is that's bothering you now is no big deal. And it's been true for me. There were so many times I wanted to say, you know, I just can't do this anymore. I'm depressed about this. I don't feel good about that. Maybe I'll just be a sales rep. Lord knows I can talk, but then I'll run into someone who really needed me at the time. And I, if I had done that other thing, I wouldn't have been there. Now, I'm not so arrogant to think that they couldn't have survived without me. But I do think I can make a difference, like any of us can, to be there for others. That's definitely a great message. So where do you see microbiology as a field in five years? Faster. Everything will be faster. You know, I have a min-ion system that was donated to me that I've Very sworn nice. I'm, going, I'm going to be using this semester. 
this particular agent Canid has a couple of tricks I need to learn. But what I'm trying to get at is it's gonna be even more this way for students. In 10 years time or five years time, the equivalent of MinION will be you know, pretty much in every undergraduate lab. So students can actually ask and answer really interesting questions. Absolutely, there'll be giant expensive machines to, to really look at things in great detail at the Max Planck or the National Institutes of Health, absolutely. But there'll be things for students in high school to do that they never could have done before. I mean, if you look at Seth Bordenstein's Discover the Microbes Within, where they're looking at Wolbachia, mm -hmm. and he's got that set up for high school, I would have eaten that up with vanilla ice cream as a high school student. And I think most students will be doing things like that in five years. So it's going to be much more of a microbial world. And I think that looking at systems biology, the interact, and, and everyone has a different definition for systems biology. I'm sorry about that. But I think that looking at the interactions of genes, that's going to be something that's really going to change the way that we look at microbes fundamentally. Mm -hmm. Finally, socio-microbiology. We have spent all this time looking at individual microbes or groups of the same microbe, but that's not how they live in nature with very few exceptions. And so we're learning how interactive everything is. And so I'm really looking forward to seeing that. Yeah, it's right now it's either a one-on-one -on -one or a very small community when you do microbiome research. That's only going to get us so far. We're going to need to start looking at microbiology as the entire environment like all the thousands of microbes interacting with each other, living in harmony. Or not. Yeah, dysbiosis. So yeah, I think that's definitely where we're going to move from. And how we're going to do that, I don't know, because just thinking about it sounds like an overwhelming task, but it's something we're going to get into in the not-too-distant future, I believe. Well, let me give you an example. I uh, wanted to come up with a, a laboratory exercise for first-year students where they could learn a little bit about statistics, so I wanted it to involve microbiology. So we did uh, crystal violet staining of biofilms, mm -hmm. of Pseudomonas putida, and we used 24 well plates. So you had six replicates. Mm -hmm. so you have positive and negative control and then two conditions. And it was a wonderful thing, right? And students get good solid data. They can actually use R or they can use Excel depending on what they're using to analyze the data. That's cool. But then the students are get, they'll get smart and they'll say, but Pseudomonas petita doesn't live by itself. I said, you're right. So how do you think we would study interactions between microbes and the effect they have on the biofilm form? And they'll talk about adding another bacterium. I said, but is that how they live? And of course it isn't, right? Right. And so how do you study all of those things? And that takes us to some of the work that I'm doing in the lab now with an undergraduate student where you can look at variants of a bacterium, you can isolate the genomic DNA, you can send that to, there's a sequence, it's called MIGS. There's a sequencing facility for $80 and you get back data that will tell you all the genes that have changed from the reference genome in that particular isolate. Now, that's very different than how I learned to do biology where I looked at one gene at a time. Right. So that's a step on the path that will let us look at those networks of genes interacting with one another that give rise to the complex phenotypes that we see all around us. Heck, when I teach genetics, you know, I'll say, here's Mendel's first law, here's Mendel's second law, and they go, okay, okay, doc, and, and here are the exceptions. And it drives them nuts. 
But I'll say that's how life is. We've simplified everything for you. And then once you get those simple ideas, you get to see all the complexities to it. There are no phenotypes in humans. Well, okay. There are only a few phenotypes in humans that are really important due to one gene. Mm -hmm. Mostly there are several. So when we look at bacteria, it's going to be the same thing. And once again, bacteria come to the rescue by understanding that network analysis in microbes that'll give us some insights into looking at things in, in higher eukaryotes like you and me. I know um, my uh, fiance, she says, as of right now, yeah, we have 6 a sequencing. We know, okay, what microbes are in, but that doesn't tell us what. And she believes that whole genome sequencing is the next step. It's like, okay, yes. now we know what microbes are in there. What are the genes involved? And then RNA-seq, so what are these genes doing in a right? particular environment? I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I was really struck when I took the microbial diversity course at Woods Hole many years ago. And at that time, this is probably very state of the art, they had an oxygen sensor, like a needle, and they had a, a micro manipulator. And you could measure oxygen until you hit a colony, and then it went like almost to zero within the colony. And that's when I realized that colonies were not going to be homogenous because the conditions were so different on the outside and the inside. And these are things that we don't think about at all because we look at one gene and one phenotype. And that was good for Minot, right? And Tatum. Right. But that's not the world. And so the exciting part, I mean, I would like to be reincarnated over and over again to be a microbiologist over and over again because every passing year, there are more ways to look at really cool questions with better tools. And that's what's exciting to be a, a microbiologist because I don't know that you can do that in other areas. You know, someone probably might say, oh, I disagree. Look at this great work I do in Evo Devo. And that's wonderful for them. It really is. But, you know, I, I love microbes and I was trained that way. Mm -hmm. So I have a friend who calls me the microbe whisperer. Well, let me tell you, we're all not listening because <laughs> they have wisdom to share with us, don't they? Oh, yeah, they do. Yeah, billions of years of wisdom. That's right. Yeah, it's like high school, like it was just fundamental microbiology. And just then they were talking about sequencing the human genome. And now it's like, all right, we're just going to sequence this whole genome. And then we'll start manipulating it of this bacteria. And it's like, this is what, 20, not even 20 years. It's I know. 17 years. It's just a huge jump. I can't agree more. It is, you know, when I start to, to tell students the way that like horizontal gene transfer really works, and then they'll say, so there really aren't species. I said, well, you have to be really careful with that term. It's not like animals and plants, mm -hmm. right? And it isn't. And I said, you know, you have to like divide your brain and the standards that you learn for animals and plants are here. And then you want to look at microbes here. And I'm not even going to talk about fungi with you. Right. <laughs> it gets very muddled. I mean, what right. is it? Uh, e. coli and Shigella, is it? Or mm -hmm. yeah, they're so genetically similar that it's hard to tell them apart. So when I do, and I think you'll be interested in this, when I, I have students look in their water bottles and it's just an, an issue of teaching them how to, you know, do single colony isolations for mixtures and we get all these biofilm formers that are really common in water bottles. They're not dangerous or anything, I don't think. <laughs> and then we do 16S colony PCR and send that out. 
And they'll think that the 16S results they get from BLAST or RDP classifier are what that organism is. And I'll say, you know, that's not true. That means it's a relative of it. So, I mean, that 16S by itself is just part of it. Right. And that's that. That's the thing. I, I know that uh, Ford Doolittle used to say that the, the family tree of life is just covered in kudzu. And, and, I, <laughs> and I think that that's really accurate because there's so much stuff going on all the time. But that's what makes it fun for me. Yeah. Even within the strain of a species, they can vary so widely and act so differently. So if you look at the E. coli that we use in the lab, DH5 alpha, you know, or HB101 or whatever, JM109, whatever it is you're using, and you compare it to the E. coli that people used to get at Jack in the Box, which people get mad when I say that, but you know what I mean. Exactly. Some of those, those EHEC, those enterohemorrhagic organisms. I mean, the one in the lab is missing a million bases compared to that other one. Is that really the same organism, right? <laughs> right. You've got the artificial bacterium that Ventner's people have made, you know, where I just can't wait to see what they do with that because that's going to be interesting. You talked about making food for people. Well, you know, you've got yourself a factory, right? Mm -hmm. You wouldn't have cheese or any dairy product without bacteria. Oh, absolutely. Or fungi. Yes. We're actually going to do some isolations. I had some talk with the Wolf Lab in Boston and with the Dutton Lab at UC San Diego, and they sent me some protocols, and my students are going to be looking at what they can get from cheese rind this year. That'll be fun. That'll be pretty fun. It's playing. Someone actually said, you just play in the lab. And I said, yeah, I do. <laughs> and I love it because I get to find out things that I didn't know before, mm -hmm. right? Right, exactly. So is there anything else that you want to say before we uh, head out today? Well, I would urge anybody who is listening that thinks they want a career in microbiology to look for mentors. Mentors can be older or younger than you. Look for that, as I call it, a quality quorum of people to help you through it. My life in microbiology has been magical because of the microbiologists that have helped me and stood by me. And I hope that you have the same experience and never lose your sense of wonder. It is so easy to get jaded about things. It's okay to be excited about what it is you're doing. And I hope that they find in microbiology what I always have, and that's a home. And don't be afraid of failure. It yes. will happen. We have all faced it. You just got to get through it. <laughs> re and research. Absolutely. Yep. And just like that silly pen says, brave enough to be bad at something new. You know, you've got to go for it. And people will help you. Mm -hmm. You know, e ego is the enemy. Don't be afraid to fail. I mean, the first gel I ever made was an inch thick. <laughs> <laughs> when I was an undergrad, there was a super perfection person that was working in the lab. I understand she wanted to be a surgeon, and this is a really good choice for her because she left out the agaros. Mm-hmm. And it was on the glass plate by surface tension. It was just hot water <laughs> and didn't flow off. And she goes, why isn't it, set, why isn't it setting? Because she'd forgotten the agaros. So that's perfection. When you <laughs> put hot water on the plate and it doesn't run off. That is skill right there. It is. So where can people find you? So I'm here at the University of, of Puget Sound in Tacoma, Washington. 
I am also on Twitter and I am on Instagram at Mark Owen Martin. No dots. My first, middle, and last name. My email, certainly you can do this via my university account. It's momartin at pugetsound.edu. Well, thank you for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. I had a lovely time. Thank you for inviting me. It was truly an honor to talk to Mark today. He really seems to be one of those professors that makes a class or lab great. If you're interested in his Lux art, then I highly suggest visiting his Twitter page. Are you interested in other microbial careers? Well, come down and visit our website, microbegales.com, and check out our Career Corner page to see our blogs and other career paths like astrobiology, being an entrepreneur, and working in industry. You can also check out some of our other podcasts where we interview people in different careers in microbiology, including Stephen Bolaris, Jennifer Welsh, Juliet Morrison, Victoria Holden, and Richard Allen. What are some microbial careers you want to hear about? Let us know by emailing us at microbagales at gmail.com or by messaging us on Twitter at microbagales. Oh, I forgot to give you the answer to our last murderous microbe moment from our last Halloween episode. I highly suggest going back to that one so you can listen to the clues and try to figure out yourself. But if you already have, the answer was Eleanor Roosevelt. Did you get it? Well, let us know. Well, everyone, until next time, bye.